Welcome to KUOW Speakers Forum. I'm your host, John O'Brien. In this episode, those of us of a certain age may recall with vivid clarity how we first came to know of a woman named Anita Hill. Then a law professor in Oklahoma, Hill accused U.S. Supreme Court nominee Clarence Thomas of sexual harassment during his 1991 Senate confirmation hearings, chaired by then-Senator Joe Biden. Hill was hesitant to put herself under a spotlight. NPR's Nina Totenberg broke the story that the Senate Judiciary Committee had ignored an affidavit Hill submitted that detailed her allegations. Totenberg's reporting forced the committee to call Hill to testify. The hearings became a media circus and resulted in further harassment for Hill. Some senators accused her of lying and doubted her sanity. Thomas denied the allegations and famously called the hearings a, quote, high-tech lynching, unquote. Other women who had offered to come forward to support Hill's testimony were not called by the committee. Thomas was narrowly confirmed 52 to 48. Prior to entering the 2020 presidential race, Biden called Hill to apologize for his handling of the Thomas hearings. He was quoted as saying, to this day, I regret I couldn't give her the kind of hearing she deserved. Hill told the New York Times, quote, I cannot be satisfied by simply saying, I'm sorry for what happened to you. I will be satisfied when I know there is real change and real accountability and real purpose, unquote. Anita Hill is now a professor of social policy, law, and women's gender and sexuality studies at Brandeis University. She has spent much of the last 30 years speaking out and educating people about a culture of harassment in the United States, where at least one in four women experience violence from intimate partners, including sexual and verbal abuse and physical assault. Hill confronts that legacy and outlines paths toward real change in her new book, Believing, Our 30-Year Journey to End Gender Violence. In it, she argues that the goal of ending gender violence is attainable, but requires work, education, and individual attention from all citizens. The Elliott Bay Book Company and the Northwest African American Museum presented Anita Hill in conversation with Angela Jones on November 18, 2021. Jones is the co-founder and managing partner of the Black Future Co-op Fund and the director of the Washington State Initiative at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Here, Elliott Bay's director of community engagement, Eric Parsons, introduces the event. Good evening, everyone. Thank you for joining uh, this special Elliott Bay Book Company event. My name is Eric Parsons. I am the uh, Director of Community Engagement for the Elliott Bay Book Company. I want to just take a moment to acknowledge that uh, the Elliott Bay Book Company is located uh, on the traditional land of the Coast Salish people, including uh, the Duwamish people. 
I am honored. I can't tell you how honored I am uh, to be here tonight to introduce two women whose work is helping to shape a society that is better for all of us, but most especially uh, helping to shape a society that is better for women. Tonight, we will hear a conversation about, we're all here for this, this essential new book uh, by Anita Hill, uh, Believing. In the introduction to Believing, uh, Professor Hill wrote that in 1991, I was young and patient. 30 years later, I make no claim to youth. And when it comes to ending violence and the inequality that it spawns, I am no longer patient. 30 years ago, this fall, uh, Professor Anita Hill faced down an all male, all white Senate Judiciary Committee led by then Senator Joe Biden to testify that her boss, Supreme Court Justice nominee Clarence Thomas had sexually harassed her. It was a landmark moment for these issues and inspired scholars to explore the far-reaching impact of gender-based violence, why it persists, and what we can do to protect future generations. Harassment and assault have no boundaries. They affect children, they affect adults. It doesn't matter your profession. They are a cultural and structural problem that hurt everyone, uh, not just its survivors and not just its victims. Professor Hill has a term that encompasses physical, psychological, and financial abuse. She calls it gender-based violence. Although men experience abuse too, it is women and non-binary people who are most at risk and who disproportionately bear the brunt of these abuses. Professor Hill describes it as, quote, the literal and figurative foot on women's necks. Again and again, we see in the book how misogyny, misogyny, racism, transphobia, are tied to gender-based violence. And so many things crossed my mind while reading this book. Um, and I couldn't help but think of Toni Morrison's novel, A Mercy. And at the end of that book, the character, Aminia Mime, the mother, tells her daughter, there is no protection to be female in this place is to be an open wound that cannot heal. Gender-based violence is a grim subject, but Professor Hill, because of her scholarship and the stories that are in this book, 
um, I think gives us a glimmer of hope and maybe a little mercy. Uh, before I introduce our guests, I want to uh, give a shout out of thanks to our co-presenter tonight, the Northwest African American Museum and its wonderful president and CEO, Anesha de la Bartolabin. Thank you. And now let me introduce our guests. Uh, Anita Hill is University Professor of Social Policy, Law, and Women's and Gender Studies at Brandeis University. After the 1991 Senate confirmation hearings for U.S. Supreme Court nominee Clarence Thomas, Professor Hill became a leading figure in the fight for women's rights and against gender-based violence. She has written for the New York Times and Newsweek, and she is a sought after speaker. Angela Jones is co-founder and managing partner of the Black Future Co-op Fund, Washington's first cooperative philanthropic entity created by and for Black people to ignite Black generational wealth, health, and well-being. Angela currently serves as the director of the Washington State Initiative at the Bill and Melinda Foundation, leading the foundation's strategy to support students where they live, learn, and play. And Angela received her Juris Doctor from Gonzaga University School of Law. Angela, I'm, I'm so glad to see you. Hello, hello, Professor Hill. I can't believe I'm actually talking because I really was speechless at the beginning of this, so. <laughs> Thank you, Eric. It's, it's so wonderful to be here. And uh, Dr. Hill, nothing but, but gratitude uh, for you. As, as Eric mentioned you know, earlier, um, you displayed immense courage 30 years ago. Um, at the Black Future Co-op Fund, we often say, you know, our mantra is we want to be good ancestors, that the, the decisions and actions we make today um, will determine whether that's true or not after we're gone. And I want to tell you, um, you, Dr. Hill, are a good ancestor. And so we appreciate that. And I'm so excited to chat with you tonight. Well, thank you. I, I, of course, I want to thank uh, Eric Parsons for that gracious introduction, generous introduction. Um, I want to thank the Elliott Bay Book Company for hosting me. Uh, I want to thank the co-sponsors, the Black Futures Co-op, the African American Museum. Um, I love the fact that this is a community engaged project and this is a community engaged program. We're gonna, I'll get to talk to people who are out there in your virtual community. Uh, and I'm very, very, uh, very pleased to be talking to my soror, uh, Ms. Angela Jones. So this is, uh, it's all good. I have four pages of questions. I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to ask you all four. <laughs> uh, that, that comes, I think, from having a, a law degree. Yes. Um, but I well, think I, where I want to start, i like to share with the audience uh, a data point from the Washington State Women's Commission, which, was, which is led by Regina Malvo, who I think is on the call tonight. Um, her commission puts out a biennial report, and the last report states that 45% of women in Washington state have experienced sexual violence. 
And you have already um, said in your book as well, um, you shared a data point that was from Seattle that the Urban Indian Health Institute found that in Seattle, 94% of indigenous women had been raped or, or coerced into sex in their lifetime. You know, th th those are startling data points when you, when you look at, at the math and you think about um, the numbers, especially, you know, the, our indigenous population is, is, is fairly, is fairly small here to think of that 94% of that population has experienced that. And so, you know, this is an, an important conversation and it can be hard to talk about this. And so where I want to start, like you got me in the preface, it's hard to hook me that quickly as someone who loves reading and writing. And you got me in the preface when you said you didn't fit the stereotype of a movement leader. And that hit me right in the heart uh, because it can be hard to lead. It can be scary um, to lead and, and you get tired. And so where I want to start is, you know, sometimes we have to do hard things. And what advice can you give to, to some of our listeners who may not think it's their role to lead in some of these hard spaces? You know, this problem that I'm, I'm outlining in the book is really a problem that is affecting everyone. So I like to start by telling people that every one of you has a stake. You quoted some statistics about the frequency and the prevalence really of the problem. If you think about 45%, you know, as, as they used to say, let's go look to your left and look to your right. You know, <laughs> maybe per, well, a person on either side of you has had this problem. And if you look at the numbers for the Native American communities uh, throughout the country, those numbers are high. Then you realize that the impact not only affects everyone, but it affects different groups differently. And uh, the, the, the individuals who are most vulnerable, like with so many, what I call crises, uh, even if we think about the pandemic, the more vulnerable people get hit the hardest. Right. And that's an ongoing theme uh, that we have over and over. And so when we talk about who has a responsibility for this, the, 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 the answer is that we all have some responsibility for addressing it. Um, some of us don't have the kind of power that others have to change things in institutions, but we all have power to do something, whether it's comforting a friend uh, or a loved one or a colleague who has been a victim of some form of this behavior, or whether it is uh, you know, pushing and moving your leadership uh, elected leadership to take these issues seriously. We can all play a role it, and we must all play a role because the problem is so enormous that we need, we all need to be engaged. Well, thank you for leading and being a catalyst uh, for others. It, you know, I'll be honest with you, uh, you know, when Elliot Bay first reached out and I had told you earlier um, in the, in the pre-session where I was super excited when they, you know, asked me to interview and at the same time, I was a little worried about whether I could handle, honestly, reading your book, uh, a book on gender violence. It's, it's a heavy topic. And 
it, it's not that I'm, you know, I wasn't aware of that, you know, as, as a, a young girl, my father, and, and even still now has always said, like, keep your head on a swivel, be alert. You're, you're, you're a woman out there. You need to be careful. And so I, I really had some self-talk where I said, Angela, if you say you're not going to interview Dr. Hill because you're worried about, like, I don't know if I can handle what's in the book, then that's me consciously pushing the issue to the margins. And so what I decided was I have to take an action, you know, a forward motion action. And, and it really hit me when I read, I, I think it was in, uh, actually on page 12, because I wrote that down, where you said, I take up the question of how to make nonviolence the norm. And I thought, wow, you know, me saying like, can't read the book, can't do this means it just continues. And so, you know, what would you say right now then is the current norm in our country around, around gender violence? Well, there's a, a, a norm around, there's many norms around it. One is the norm around sort of the acceptance of it. I mean, we even see it in our language uh, where we, you know, when, when something, uh, someone complains, especially children complain about behavior that's violent, um, we, you know, we excuse it. We'll say, oh, boys will be boys. Or even and when adults complain, it's, well, that's just the way men are. And you have to learn to put up with it. We train people um, who have been victimized to diminish the, the hurt that they're feeling by using language like, well, you know, it's really not that bad. Or, you know, you, you know, um, don't make a big deal out of it. And so the norm is for us to sort of keep pushing it down, keep pushing it back. And unfortunately, in many ways, the norm is still to blame victims for their own abuse, for the abuse that they experience. Um, and you, you, I've heard stories from people uh, who have said that when they complained, even to friends about being sexually assaulted, um, even well-meaning people ask questions like, well, what were you doing there? Or wasn't it a little late to be out? Or were you drinking? Um, all those questions that sort of then put the burden on the individual to prove that they shouldn't be violated. Uh, and, and or don't deserve to be violated. One of the harshest stories I've read, it actually came very recently, even since I wrote the book, um, it was about, it was, a, it was a, um, a, a letter, email letter, we all get them from different organizations. And this was an organization that was representing girls, um, advocacy on behalf of girls. And they were talking about the need for Title IX, which protects against gender, race, um, and sexual harassment in schools. And um, this little girl said that her first experience with sexual assault, she wrote this, her first experience with sexual assault was when she was in the first grade. And she told the teacher on the boy. And um, after listening to, to her, the teacher suspended her recess. And she did that and said, it's because that she, the girl who was complaining, was being inappropriate wow. in telling what had happened. 
talking about. And what we, you know, when we talk about the culture, what that does, that kind of behavior does is to create an expectation among young people who are victimized that nothing will happen to protect them, that the adults who are in the room are, will not protect them, um, that there will be no response to their victimization. Uh, and so that they learn over time not to complain. And then they become adults, they go in the workplace and, and, and people ask, you know, why weren't you complaining or why didn't you complain earlier? It's because you've actually been trained to believe that nothing will happen. But even more important, I think, or as important, is that we're training children who are behaving badly to think that their behavior is acceptable. And so that's the kind of culture we have. It doesn't start with adults. It doesn't start with street violence. It, it, it's the kind of acculturation that process that we go through really starts in elementary school and we tell you know over and over again I, I'm going through this book I've asked people to think about how many times they have been told that what they were experiencing which they know is harmful and hurtful how many times have they been told it's not that bad or you know don't make a big deal of it right um, it, you know that's just what John does or that's just the way these guys always have acted. Um, and so those are the kinds of cultural factors that I think that we have to, to, to really begin to understand and to question our own behavior and our own reaction. Because, you know, I don't blame people, people, because this is what the, these are the messages that they've lived with all of their lives. And so, this is what we carry into our workplaces. Um, this is what starts in our schools, carried into our high schools and, and college and then into the workplace. And this is where we are right now. I think that these are learned behaviors, learned responses. And we can, we can teach other kinds of responses. Um, we can change culture. I mean, we, We've seen it. One of the things that I do in the book is I talk about my parents' experience. I'm the youngest of 13 children. Um, my parents were born in 1911 and 1912. They went through Jim Crow, uh, uh, Oklahoma, and, and, and my mother early in life, Jim Crow, Arkansas. They, um, they raised uh, 10 of their children to graduate from segregated schools. So they experienced segregation in education. Uh, three of us went to integrated school. But, and I say that to say that they also experienced integration in their life. So we, I, I have seen in the lives of my parents and in my siblings change. It's not complete. Right. But I have seen change. And if we can change how our behavior and our thinking um, in terms of race issues or um, ethnicity, um, we can rethink how we're acting in terms of gender, in particular when it involves violence. Yeah. 
But so my people are also from Arkansas. And so I get what you're saying about seeing that change. You know, it made me think um, when I was in college, I was the head of the chair of the women's coalition and we spent our efforts teaching women how to be safe and putting things in place like um, through the women's resource center, sort of this taxi service so that women didn't have to walk alone. But it occurred to me as I was preparing for our conversation um, that we never had programming focused on um, men and their behaviors that impact our safety. And I also thought about as a parent, I was wondering like, have I ever had conversations with my sons, you know, about what's appropriate? Like, here's the behavior, you know, that I, that I expect of you. Here's how you treat. We, we always say, oh, you'll be nice and treat others how you want to be treated, but being explicit about it was, was something that hit me. And as I think about how we can lead in the spaces we're in, even starting with self and family, you know, in our, in our, in our children. And so I, I really appreciate what you said about teaching other responses. Well, and, and one of the things that um, I have a colleague who, who is, is a really good colleague, both he and his wife uh, are friends. And one of the things that they do is that they talk to their children's teachers. They have three children. They talk to their teacher about the different, their expectations that their children, they have one daughter and two sons, that there will not be these gender differences in terms of, of what the expectations are for, for children, um, that they want their children to read books, for example, or be read to the books that treat people the same. Uh, they, they want that to be, and they want to be partners with the teachers in making sure that happens. And I think that's, you know, it's, it's, it's important for us to talk, to have these talks with everyone. Um, but it's very important for us to be talking to the people who are really our, our models for appropriate and unfortunately, in some cases, inappropriate behavior. Right. No, agreed. Um, I'm going to switch topics on you now. Well, same same topic, different angle of it. Um, when I was reading the book, there were a couple of instances where you mentioned the economic impact of gender violence, and you know, there, there's obviously an, an, an impact um, to you know the victim directly. Um, but you also, you know, talked about it in, in a greater sense um, across communities and impacting every facet um, of our lives, um, whether that gender violence happened directly to us or around us or even to somebody um, across another community. And so can you talk about, um, you know, what that economic impact is, share with the audience a little bit more about that? Yeah. So first of all, let me just say that my goal in this book was to be very inclusive. So I wanted to include a whole range of behaviors. And, and I believe you've alluded to that. Uh, Eric Parsons alluded to it. All, you know, I wanted us to understand that we're not just talking about one type of behavior when we talk about this impact of, of violence that's directed um, largely at women, uh, but is inclusive in and of itself of other genders. Um, 
that we are talking about a whole range of behaviors. We've hardly begun to measure the economic impact. We know that there can be a drain on community for just in terms of the medical costs that can be associated with, are associated with gender violence. Um, and that includes all kinds of, whether it's sexual assault and rape, whether it's intimate partner violence, whether it is sexual harassment um, in, the, in the workplace, in our in, uh, schools. Um, we also need to consider, however, sort of lost productivity. You know, you know 50% of women who have experienced uh, harassment in the workplace, for example, will leave their jobs. And we know that it, it, when people pick up and leave, especially precipitously, they often lose income. Um, they might lose status or uh, uh, abilities to be promoted to get more income. So these are setbacks. These are economic setbacks for them individually. But during the time when they are being harassed, we know that the problem causes lot loss in productivity. Um, uh, not only has it been measured to be a loss in productivity of the individual who is the direct victim, but also in many cases, the people around them, because you know, they, they, the behavior impacts the culture. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so these are things that, that we know that um, we're losing money, whether it's medical costs, whether it's loss of productivity, um, turnover, people just come dropping out. And that ha ha happens um, in colleges and universities where people just sort of drop out or maybe they change majors or they move schools. All of these things are losses but we haven't measured them. We haven't completely measured the loss. And, and um, there's an example, you know, uh, a couple of years ago, four senators, um, uh, Patty Murray was one of the senators. Yay. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, Elizabeth Warren was, Diane Feinstein, um, and uh, Kristen Gildebrand was the, uh, the fourth, went to the government organization and asked for the cost of sexual harassment in the workplace. That cost alone, they just said, what is the economic cost of that? What is it doing to our businesses? What is it doing to our businesses in terms of lost productivity, uh, uh, litigation costs, all of those things that cost money and, and get pulled out from things that could be more productive. Um, and the, you know, the answer that they got back was that those costs have not been fully calculated. That we, we, the government still doesn't measure the depth of the problem. And that's one of the things that I asked for is that measure, figure out. I mean, we have statistics talking about the numbers. How, what is it actually doing to people? We know about the personal harms. And we should know about those and we should feel those and understand them to be deeply important. But we also need to know about what is it costing our 
economy uh, at, at large, and 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 we we don't we don't collect it. We don't know. You know and what it comes down to me is this: what we you know if we don't measure a problem, we can't really claim a solution for it because we haven't even figured out how big the problem is and and where all it goes. And and honestly, I believe that if this were a problem that we cared deeply enough about, we would measure. We measure what we care about. Right. We go after solutions for what we care about. Um, and that's not to say no one cares about this problem, but it is something that we have been told or taught that you know, it's just sort of natural or inevitable. And, but I think if we begin in some of the, the work, just the sort of everyday, ordinary work that we do when we see a problem, we start to measure how big it is. You know, it, it's like now we've got infrastructure that's on the table. So we're going and we're looking now throughout this country at all of the bridges and looking at, you know, how bad, how, how, you know, how badly they are damaged and how badly they need repair. What's it going to cost to fix them? And we should be doing that same kind of assessment when it comes to gender violence. Yeah. People measure what they want to measure, what's important to them. And, you know, I, I was, um, I loved in your book, you talk about in, t- in terms of taking a systems level approach, you know, to, to mitigating, um, you know, gender violence. Can you talk a little bit more about your thoughts around uh, a systemic approach to eradicating yeah. the issue? Well, it is a systemic problem. It's a problem of behavior. Certainly it's individual behavior problem. It's a problem that's cultural because, you know, as I've talked about how culture accepts it. And in some places, in some ways, in some places, people become, uh, cultures become complicit in it. Um, not only do are certain cultures, you know, we've, we're reading a lot now about um, one lawsuit in the gaming industry with, with uh, a fairly well-known gaming company, if you know gaming. <laughs> um, but what we're reading is that the culture seem to not only accept it, but seem to almost thrive on the bad behavior. So we know it's a cultural problem. We know it's a behavioral problem, but it's not a a problem of, you know, a few bad apples. This combination of culture and behavior. And then what we also know is that in many cases, the structures that are in place that are meant to solve the problem in fact, exacerbated because they put in many ways, it puts the entire burden of solving the problem, bringing the problem to the front on the person who is being abused. You know, it's just like you were saying, you did all of this work to teach women about how to stay safe. And you weren't talking to the police about how to keep people safe. Right. And, and, and so the, the structures really put all of this, uh, the, the weight or the most of the weight to solve this problem on people who are vulnerable now. Um, and 
So it creates a, a number of hurdles that people have to go through uh, that are not necessary or not helpful to the solutions. And so we, we, we have to see all of those elements. We have to see the behavior. We have to understand what is egregious and, and uh, illegal behavior. We have to have codes of conduct. We have to have in, in our heads what we value uh, in terms of what we just think is beyond the pale or intolerable behavior. We need to have that discussion. We also need to, and we're beginning to do that. I think that's one of the beaut the things that the Me Too movement and these public discussions and a lot of these memoirs that are out, that's what has been elevated, the depth of the behavior and how we need to respond. We need to um, see uh, what our cultures are doing. How is the culture supporting it? How are we um, not holding people accountable as a culture because they are rich and powerful and, or that they're, you know, they're a manager versus a line worker. Right. Uh, so, so we need that part, but we also need to examine our structures. How do our procedures leave out information um, that should be heard in order to get to the truth of situations? And, and of course, when I think, talk about that, of course, I talk about the hearings of 1991. But I also saw those repeated, those same structures that prevented testimony from coming in uh, happened in 2018 with Christine Blasey Ford's testimony. Yeah. So all of the above, I mean, that's what I mean by a systemic approach. Mm -hmm. We can't just look at one part of this problem we've got to look at the whole of it and the different ways and the different, uh, in particular, the different uh, manners in which it is maintained uh, and, and is allowed to continue. I have, I have so many follow-up questions on every, every vertical in there. I, I'm gonna start though <laughs> with the, the cultural context because you know, I think about you know, some communities you know, gr growing up you know, we were always taught, you know, first of all, you know, mind your business. And second of all, don't put our family's business out there in the streets. Right. And so it is, as I think about that, be, being part of, of the culture, um, you know, how, how does that, you know, those become barriers, right. And marginalize, you know, people who gender violence is happening to Can you talk a little bit about um, that piece as well, digging a little bit into that culture piece? Yeah, well, there's that, there is that culture of silence. You just don't tell that sort of thing. Um, and, and in some ways it's, it, it's directed at people personally because you don't want to hurt your family. Right. But in other ways, it's in particular communities of color, you don't want to bring more scorn onto your community. You don't, and in some cases, you know, today, um, young people in particular are saying, we don't want to go to the police uh, to report intimate partner violence because that'll bring more policing into our homes. Um, we don't talk about sexual assault or harassment. Uh, I have 
young women, young uh, black women, young women of color, generally who come and say, well, you know, I felt that I couldn't come forward because the person I was accusing was another person of color. And I, I you know, with so much bias against us, right. I didn't want to bring more in. And, and then on the other hand, I have these young um, men who say, I really want to be a part of this movement because I, I think it's important for me. It's for my, my family members. It's important just for my sense of what's right and wrong to get rid of gender violence. It's not right. Uh, but they're also afraid of being wrongly accused. Uh, they're afraid of not necessarily even coming from women, but afraid of this uh, presumption of guilt that happens uh, coming from authorities, from police. And, and so what, what I say in, in the book, and, and I know I don't have the answers to this, but what I say is that what we have to realize is that this, is, this problem is a community problem. That you know, we're not, but we also have to acknowledge that in order to get rid of gender violence, we're gonna have to deal with issues of racism that keep it from being reported and keep it from being treated uh, with a kind of respect and dignity to keep victims. Uh, because victims of color will say, uh, and, and it's been documented, that they are treated differently when they come forward with their complaints. Um, and, and we know that when this, if a complaint sexual assault, that, that the, the police and, and um, prosecution's record of really having gender justice um, is 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 just is just very poor. There's a small margin of, of individuals who have been sexually assaulted uh, ever see the courtroom or get before a jury because their cases are not followed through uh, in the in the criminal justice system. And so, uh, and 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 we also know that that. Uh, those numbers for women of color are even then smaller than for the general population. So, so those are things that we have to do with, but in certain communities, communities of color, even some religious communities, um, let's think about the uh, Catholic clergy, clergy scandal. You know, there were people who kept that secret because they didn't want to bring scorn onto the church. And so we, these are barriers that we have to get over. And the, and, and the response can be moved, pushed from outside, but for overall solution, communities have to be involved right. as well. You, you talk about um, in your book, some generational involvement and you, uh, t you talk about the millennials. Um, so you know, maybe we've got some hope here um, in, in getting some traction. Can you talk a little bit about why um, you think that about millennials? Well, I, th I, you know, I think, I say two things about millennials. Yes, uh, there is some hope, uh, but we can't expect them to do it on their own because 
first of all, all millennials are not, <laughs> they're, they're not behind us, uh, behind us with this. They're not, they're, they can express some really troubling ideas too, if, we, if you think about it, and, and even younger, um, we think of that as uh, we go down in age that our uh, children are more accepting of equality and equity and less likely to see differences. That's what we tell ourselves. And that it's largely true to some extent. But, you know, uh, over a third of tweens experience some kind of cyber harassment, um, race, gender, uh, homophobia. So it's routine and their experiences from their peers. So this is, you know, so not all of them are have are on the same page. It's not monolithic. And um, so that's, I'm grateful that we are moving in the right direction, but we're not, it's not complete. The movement's not complete. And then finally though, this goes back to the structures and seeing this as a systemic problem as opposed to a behavioral problem. Um, when the problems occur, we still put those young people into the same old processes mm -hmm. that haven't served uh, uh, us older folks. And so until those processes change, we are not going to be able to have this vision, this new vision of equality and safety, basic safety and anti-violence or non-violence actually lived out. Um, you know, and, and who is in charge of those processes? It's not those young people. Right. Um, so that is where we come in. That is our responsibility. And that's what I, I think we, we need to, every generation has to be responsible. We can't put it off for another generation and say, oh, this generation will take care of it. Um, we've done all we can. We haven't done all we can uh, until it's time for us to meet our makers. Yeah. <laughs> and then, then we can that. say we, we can quit doing what we can. But what, we, what I, I, but um, more positively, I'd like to, for, all of us to think about what kind of generation do we want to pass on? I mean, imagine if the people before us, our generation, our ancestors, those good ancestors that we all want to be, had said, okay, another generation will take care of us. Um, we wouldn't be where we are today. Every generation has its responsibility. And, and, and we, I think in our hearts, I think every generation wants to pass on something better to give the next generation an opportunity to, to really to start to eliminate these issues. Wow, you got me convicted on that one. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I appreciate that, that connection and thinking about you. You wrote in your book, like it's a relay. Right. We, yeah. we there, but we can't just keep passing on the same stuff. And then that point that you just made that it's the same processes, you know, over and over and over again. And we haven't changed those. And so that's one part when you talk about, you know, the, the systemic approach 
those processes have, have to be a part of it. I, I used to be a vice president of student affairs. And so, you know, the student conduct hearings run in my portfolio. And when they did change their processes, they changed it in a way that universities weren't prepared to actually handle whether that was um, protecting um, the victims or also giving due process, you know, to the to the alleged perpetrator. And so, um, yeah, I'm really convicted by what you just said at that moment about what is it we're handing. We can't just, you know, hand off all of our junk and be like, next one's got it, they'll take care of it. And so thank you for that reminder and a reminder hopefully to our our audience. I think we're getting the nudge that I've got to take Q&A, even though I've probably only got through one page of my questions. Um, I, I want to take some, some Q&A, but I want to give a plug that for those of you in the audience, if you have not read the book or if you bought the book and you haven't read it yet, you're missing out. Um, I learned so much and had so many reminders about uh, what my purpose is and how I march through this world by reading this, this book. And whether, whether your purpose is to lead in the gender violence space or some other space, I guarantee you this book fits the way Dr. Hill has written this. So please um, encourage you to get out there, read the book, and quite frankly, support someone who has already been a good ancestor um, for us. But you've got several questions. Um, well, you should show them your, your book, too. Oh, you're going to throw me right under the bus. So <laughs> I don't know. I got to get right. This is the spine of my book where I have put all kinds of notes. And I've even written and underlined in the book, um, you know, because my life's work is transforming education. My life's work also is trying to build an infrastructure for the Black community. These things are not separate issues. And, and so, um, yeah, I, I just learned so yeah. much and I'm so grateful for the way you laid it out. And I promise you, you all, I'm not just saying this because I also have a law degree. If Even if you don't have a law degree, you will understand this book the way Dr. Hill laid it out for each of us. And it's written in digestible segments for you to ponder um, and, and move through. And so just, again, you could have done the hearing dealt with everything that came from that and all the trauma and just tucked yourself away and went on with your life. But you continue to step out and lead on behalf of those coming behind you. And so I'm um, just ever so grateful. Well, and, and in addition to some of the legal concepts, you know, the book is full of stories uh, because I know how you tell a story, how you tell, talk about an issue, how you write a book determines who is going to be see themselves in it. And I wanted, as I said from the, at the beginning, I wanted this to be an inclusive book. I wanted people to see themselves or see their family members or friends or colleagues in, in the book. And so there are, are plenty of stories that I think will grab people's attention too, but there are statistics because some people say, well, where's the proof? Where's the statistic? And then, you know, they're the, the, the concepts that, you know, sort of guide our lives that we maybe didn't even know we're, we're kind of in charge of what we can do in these situations right. or what we can't do. And so I think this, this what I wanted to do was, of course, well, I wanted people to read it and I didn't want them to put it down, but, you know, after reading 10 pages because they couldn't wade through it. Um, so I, I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful that uh, people will see it that way. 
But I'm also hopeful that they will see that whatever I'm saying, um, there are solutions. There are solutions out there. And I, and I know we have to go to questions. So but we are the, so like we, like <laughs> you, you, can, you can build a model you know, to, for change, but the humans, we have to empower that model to, to happen. And so we, everything, there, there's, you know, like 78 of us here tonight, we all have a role um, in that change. So I bet, I know I better get to a couple of questions, huh? Uh, you have a question here. When you decided to testify, did you have a sense of the impact and gravity your testimony would have? No, no. And, 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 and I, the, 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 the real inkling that I had of, the impact was the letters that I started to get. And, and, and honestly, this, you know, this book talks about 30 years, um, thousands of letters, emails now, um, started out mostly women talking about sexual harassment in the workplace. It moved, I've heard from incest survivors, I've heard from people of all genders, I've heard people of all races and backgrounds and experiences. And so, um, no, but I started to get a feel for it. And then I tell the story about um, this happened 10 years ago. So this has all sort of been developing. It's evolved. I've evolved over the years. To, uh, 10 years ago, I was in a, an event in this young, it was a, a high school. And I don't often talk at high schools, but this was great. It was a Votex school. And we were in the cafeteria and the young people could come up and they'd go to the microphone and they'd ask a question. And that was great. And this one young man came to the microphone and said to me, how does it feel to know you've changed the world? Wow. And when I heard that, you know, I didn't really, I didn't really feel like I had changed the world, but I felt like there were people who were counting on me to change the world. There were young people who deserved to have a better world. And for whatever reason, um, and that if I could do you know, my dedicate my life to anything, it would be to, you know, making what he was saying to me a reality in his life and the lives of other young people. Oh, thank you. I, th this next question is, is somewhat related because you made that decision to testify. So this question has to do with mental health and it's what has been the most helpful practices to care for your own mental health as an outspoken advocate and survivor of gender-based violence? Stay close to people who love you. <laughs> Stay close to the things that brought you there. I mean, I, I, I've, I've, I, I literally prayed my way through the testimony. Getting, and and it, it, it was, and I, and I talk about that more in the um, uh, biography, autobiography I wrote. But, but you know, there is, I guess, in, 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 in many ways, I guess, let's sum it up, it's be grounded. And you can be grounded in your spirituality. You can be grounded in those values that you grew up with, with the people. So that's where my family comes in. Uh, um, you can be grounded in the things that you have valued because of your profession, like fairness and justice, because you're a lawyer. Uh, but all of those things, just stay grounded in those things and, 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 be true that you know you know be true to yourself that doesn't mean that you don't grow but it also means understanding what it is you can do what you can do as your unique and authentic self um, 
in, uh, in, in changing the, the things that you want to change impact and the things that you want to impact. So, okay. oh, go ahead. so, it's a, so there, there are a whole variety of things. And then there's also things like yoga. <laughs> I'm terrible at yoga. I'm trying to. I am too. I'm trying to learn to meditate, but then my brain keeps making lists. Yes, I know. That's not the point. It's not. (laughs) I try. I know what what you're saying. It absolutely. (laughs) But uh, but then there, you know, yoga. You can be a moving meditation, and maybe that's a little bit easier. But I'll try that. I'll try that. And working out, doing doing working out, eating well. I mean, those are some basic things, but but all of it counts. And then knowing when, when you need to take breath. That, that self-care. Um, there, this was a, related a little bit to, to what you just mentioned. And um, one of the audience members, you know, asking how, how do they better support their moms or sisters and, and, and women in general? And how do they do this locally? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I think there are all kinds of local organizations. You know, there are um, shelters. So, uh, there was a surge in intimate partner violence during the pandemic and in, in, in the shelters really were stretched. And, you know, you can support your community uh, by supporting these shelters. And it doesn't mean that you go down to work. I mean, sometimes it's just giving a donation or participating in one of their fundraisers or, you know, um, how can you, and, it, it, and how you support depends on where you're positioned um, you know, if you're a teacher, you can certainly support your students and because uh, uh, there's a lot going on on campuses right now. Um, but the people around you just, one, need to know that you understand that when you have, when there's statistics out there that say whether it's a 90-something percent in uh, Native population or the 45% in other populations, when you know those exist, you know that there is a risk that those people who you love are bearing. And you know, even just having a conversation about that, saying that you understand uh, or listening. Yeah, and I hope hopefully my sons are listening. I told them I wanted to listen in um, because I needed to do a better job of having this conversation with them. And so there, there's actually a comment in the chat that I'd like to read to you. As I watched your testimony, I was reminded of how much I needed to make the world better for our two daughters who would grow up to face so many challenges. It also exposed some of my shortcomings as a male in our society. Uh, thank you. This was not a question, but a thank you for your bravery. Um, well, and thank, I mean, it takes a lot of courage to admit your shortcomings um, and, and, and uh, step up and try to supplement them, let's say. So uh, I appreciate that. I love hearing these stories uh, about people who really had to take a good look at what, what they were doing. Not that they were deliberately trying to be abusive, but that they were not acknowledging the abuse and not acknowledging the role that their lack of participation was playing in it. And I, I think that I probably have to hand this over. I'm enjoying this conversation. There are so many questions in the chat or in the uh, Q&A um, we didn't get to. 
Um, but I think I have to hand it over uh, to Eric. We have one minute left. At well, this I hope at some point I get a you know get a copy of those those chat or Q and A questions. So, Eric, maybe that's something you and Karen could help Dr. Hill with. Yes, okay. definitely. I I I can only hope that everyone here tonight is as profoundly affected by this discussion as I am. Um, and I appreciated that comment, the, the man. Uh, we need to hear that more often. Um, and I, I live by a mantra and my mantra is, I don't want to do anything that squanders the legacy of the ancestors. And when I think of that person who wrote to that you changed the world, I think of how that act of bravery, of courage, uh, kept uh, with the ancestors. When you think about Harriet Tubman, when you think about Fannie Lou Hammer, when you think about Ella Baker, uh, these black women, who did things uh, that took enormous courage and bravery and that did create change. Uh, you know, Professor Hill, Dr. Hill, uh, you did it. And I want us to remember what you said earlier that um, this problem is so enormous. So we can't be silent. And this conversation should not end tonight. It should continue with our families, with our friends, with our coworkers, because as Professor Hill said, every one of us has a stake um, and we all have some responsibility. So um, uh, I want to thank you, Professor Hill, Dr. Hill, uh, for being here. Um, I wanna thank one last time, uh, the Northwest African-American Museum and its president, uh, Lanesha Dale Bartleman, for being one of our co-presenters. Thank you. And Angela, thank you for leading that conversation because uh, as a fire truck goes by, <laughs> thank you for leading that conversation because I think this is going to uh, be a part of the change that we need. Um, so everyone, thank you for being here tonight. And, uh, again, Angela and Professor Hill, uh, God bless you. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thank you, Thank Dr. You. Hill. Thank you both so much. It, this was a pleasure. Yeah. Uh, and, and thank all of the people who asked questions and, and who logged on tonight. And, and I hope, as, as we've said, the conversation continues. Yes. yes. And yes. you put us off to a great start. Yes, you <laughs> did. Thanks, Angela. Thanks. <laughs> right. Good night, everyone. Good night. Thank you. Good night, everyone. The L.A. Bay Book Company and the Northwest African American Museum presented Anita Hill in conversation with Angela Jones on November 18th. To find the full event and other great Seattle area talks, go to our website, kuow.org speakers. While you're there, subscribe to our podcast and share your comments. Thank you for listening. Tune in again soon.